Today's Bible readings um, come from, firstly, Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Our second reading comes from Matthew, chapter 5, verses 3 to 13. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. This ends the readings. Now I'm going to invite uh, Reverend Cameron to come and uh, deliver the message. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to be with you yet again. Um, For those that I didn't meet last week or the previous time that I had the opportunity to preach, my name is Cameron Clousing. I am one of the lecturers at Christ College. Uh, I bring greetings once again from the college. Uh, I thought I'd give a quick update on on it, just just a few few minutes. Uh, um, We have, the college is in a great spot right now. We have 10 candidates from ministry graduating from, uh, from the college this, uh, this year. Uh, these are men that are uh, preparing to go into pastoral ministry and then uh, a, a couple deaconess candidates. It's, it's really an exciting time at, uh, at our denomination's theological college. Um, pray for these men and women as they prepare to go out into the church uh, in, in New South Wales and the ACT, that uh, the Lord continue to guide them and, and 
help them to find the right fits. Uh, some of them already are slated to enter into parish ministry. Others are looking for spots. There are actually more candidates graduating than we actually have spots uh, looking for candidates. So um, be praying for these young men and women as they, as they move forward. If, if the health of a denomination uh, is... Uh, is, is is seen in the people that it's graduating from its theological institution, I can say that I think that our, our denomination has a bright future ahead uh, as these young men and women love the Lord and, look forward and, and are looking for opportunities to lift high the name of Christ and to bring the gospel to Australia. Um, we're coming once more to... Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. I, I must confess that, that I rarely preach the same passage two Sundays in a row, unless I'm preaching at two different churches. Um, but as I, as I considered this passage, I mean, I, this is one of those passages in the scriptures. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was fond to say that, it, it, that we should preach the great passages of the Bible uh, because all you have to do is read it over and over again, and you're guaranteed a good sermon. And this is one of those great passages of Scripture. Last week we looked at justice and mercy. This week we're going to look at that third virtue that is put forward here in Micah chapter 6, verse 8 in particular. It, it, it is that virtue of humble faith. Th- these virtues Micah holds forth for, for all of us, in whatever stage to which the Lord has called you, Micah is, is calling us to these three virtues. He says to us, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, as we hear that, our, our call is to know how to apply this in our day and age. So before we consider the passage before us, let's go before the Lord one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have given us everything we need for life and godliness in your word. Open our ears to hear it, open our hearts to receive it, open our hands to respond We pray this, trusting in the finished work of your Son on our behalf. We pray this through the power of your Holy Spirit, who live and reign with you, one God, always and forever. Amen. Vienna, Austria, is this amazing place in Europe. It stands at the crossroads of Central Europe and Eastern Europe, and it's done so for more than a thousand years. The its location makes it this uh, amazing international city in, in many ways. A city like un, any other. You, you can think of Sydney or London or New York. And they all have ver- their own version of diversity and multicultural communities. But Vienna, and Vienna's character is drawn from this supranationalism, which is unique to domains that were ruled by the Habsburgs. It's in Vienna that, the, that Northern Europe meets the Balkans, that Western Europe meets the steppes. The Alps tumble down into the Adriatic. Northern uh, Vienna is this vast, roiling mix of peoples 
and traditions. It's not really a melting pot so much as a a cauldron of its famed goulash. It's this uh, beautifully and deliciously incongruous mix. It's a weird mixture of of German high-tech in the airports, roads, and hotels, but the food, hospitality, and music is all old-world Europe. It's, it's really a seductive place with, uh, with magnificent theaters, its resplendent palaces, and its broad, bustling boulevards. However, the one place that strains all of Vienna's wide-ranging heritage, and, and where this is most evident, is at the Steffensdomplatz. This is the city's beautiful Gothic cathedral. It was consecrated in uh, 1147. The, the church was, uh, in, has endured a tumult uh, of, of war and fire, plagues, revolutions, conquest, and imperial ambition. And over the years, vast Gothic towers, chapels, vaults, spires, portals were, were all added in this wild architectural texture and scales. Yet in the end, they all seem... Uh, to harmonize into one beautiful cathedral. Though conceived quite separately, they they coalesce into this uh, inconsonant unity. Thinking about Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, over the course of the last few weeks has, has gotten me thinking about this cathedral once more. Uh, Last week we saw this covenant lawsuit which is brought against the people of Israel. The people of Israel had had taken the Lord for granted and grown weary of him, verse 3 tells us. The, The Lord had not moved away from them, they had moved away from him. They had grown distant from him in their hearts. So God had summoned them to plead his case. He had a grievance, and the remedy which he sought was a renewal of that ancient covenant faithfulness and love. We saw this last week, that even while Micah thinks about the people of Israel in his day, he's looking beyond his day to our day. Micah 6 stands in this beautiful spot where it comes right before Micah chapter 5, as chapter 6 usually comes after chapter 5. And in Micah chapter 5, we hear that beautiful promise of the coming Messiah. And now as we journey into Micah chapter 6, what we find is is the consequence of Messiah's rule. Last week we saw that that no amount of sacrifice would do. It It was not enough to surrender all of myself to the Lord that brings me into relationship with the Lord. It's not offering the most personal and painful sacrifice that would atone for my sin. It was only in the Lord coming to us and initiating that relationship with us, which could secure for us a relationship with God on high. It's only in realizing that we cannot, uh, it's only in realizing that, that, that we are able to understand that famous verse at the end of 
Micah chapter 6, verse, uh, the passage that we have before us, that's this, this famous verse of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It is only because of the old covenant, it's only because the old covenant has been fulfilled in Christ that we are now able to do what this verse calls us to do. So, so we come uh, this week to that last virtue in this list. Once again, these are not virtues that the Lord gives us that, that are to bring us into relationship with him. They, are, they aren't virtues that the Lord gives us to even keep us in relationship with with him. Getting in and staying in are all about Christ and what he has done on our behalf. His finished work on our behalf, which is applied by the Spirit. These virtues, at the end of Micah chapter 6, verse 8, these virtues are, are the consequences. They are, they are the virtues that mark out what being in a relationship with God looks like in this poor, fallen world. We saw last week that, that the first two virtues are, are in fact, the, the second table of the Ten Commandments. All of, those, all of those commandments that are focused on our neighbors. But the second table of the law makes no sense without the first table of the law. The, the, the commandments that are God-focused. So Micah tells us that we are to walk humbly with our God. There's something to note at the very beginning here. Notice that that Israel has had this distant relationship with God. Their relationship had grown cold and weary. And now Micah reminds them that just as God has called them my people earlier in the passage, they can call God their God. This God is is close at hand. This God on high can be close at hand because of what this God on high has done for them. This last virtue is the reversal of everything that Israel had been complaining about. They had been bored with God. God says, you are my people. They they thought that they could get into a relationship with God through sacrificing to him. God says, I come to you first. And now that they know that they are in a relationship with him, they, like Adam in the garden, like Noah before the flood, like Abraham throughout his life, will walk with God. This walk is characterized by humility. Humility being that that Christian virtue, that that Christian approach to any issue in life, any, any problem, any situation, any circumstance, that, that approaches all of life, uh, that, that approach to all of life, which is theocentric. That, that is to say, recognizing the, the centrality of the Lord in all of life. It, it is quite literally remembering what Revelation chapter 1 tells us, that he is the Alpha and the Omega of all things. It is approaching every triumph and failure with this in view, God is sovereign. 
This is the fundamental truth that underlines the whole Christian life, that Christ is for all of life, not just what happens here on Sundays, not just what happens in your personal devotions, but what happens in every aspect of life. It's approaching life with God at the center of it. This is what it means that our, that our lives are, are uh, this, this, is, this, is, uh, this means that our lives are, are, are suffused with this holy fear and reverence of the Lord. This is the point that everything, uh, it's to the point that everything in our lives is affected by this. This is what Proverbs chapter 1 gets at when it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and, under, and, and instruction. Or, or Proverbs 14, when it says, the fear of the Lord, in, the, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn away from the snares of death. Or 1 Peter chapter 5, where we read, Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Humility is not a popular concept these days, is it? Yet, yet when, we, when we look at the English reformers that composed the Westminster Standards, they recognized that the beginning of any serious endeavor must necessarily be rooted in humility, in a humble and holy fear of our gracious and almighty God. That worship of him, fellowship with him, service to him, communion in him must be the vortex of any and all other activities in life. This is why the Shorter Catechism opens up by asserting that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The biblical faith is a circumspect fear of the living God. That is its essence. That is what it looks like to walk humbly with your God. Andrew Bonar was a 19th century Scottish pastor who modeled this humble faith. Andrew lived at a time in Scotland that produced some of the most remarkable servants of God in the history of the church. Andrew was in a member of this galaxy of brilliant reformed Scots. Uh, These these were preachers and writers and missionaries, including his brothers John, James, and Horatius, as well as Robert Murray McShane, William Chalmers Burns, and Alexander Duff. They were bound together by a common cause in a common time with a common vision by a common law. Together, these men uh, became known as the evangelical prodigies. They were uh, students of Thomas Chalmers, the great Scottish reformer, and they were known as Chalmers School of the Saints. They would be responsible for an astonishing burst of gospel energy, productivity, and profundity hardly matched before or since. Bernard's long and fruitful ministry was remarkably was remarkable not only for his achievements in writing and in hymnody, evangelism, missions, organization, and support, and pastoral effectiveness, but also for his personal piety and holiness. 
His great concern was to guard against the idol factories in his own heart. His, his books and sermons were filled with this theme. He, he's constantly recommending the old Puritan discipline of self-examination as, as this essential check against the persistent and perpetual wiles of idolatry. For, 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 for Bonar, the personal holiness was the foundation upon which a ministry within the covenant community and outside it to the lost was to be built. He believed that identifying idols for destruction in his own life was merely a prelude for him to identify altars for service unto the lives of others. As a result, Bonar came to have a passion for, uh, for the souls of people. His manse and the chapel narthex of his parish church in Glasgow were both adorned with Hebrew script reading, He that winneth souls is wise. It was his motto and his mission. For all of his spiritual achievements in the area of personal holiness and evangelism, Bonar remained remarkably humble throughout his life. Though he was not insensitive to the gracious appointments of the blessings in his life, he was ever alert to his vices more so than his virtues. He was all too aware of his idolatrous tendencies over and against his moral victories. And thus, four years before Bonar died, he wrote this in his diary. He said, quote, I spent most of this day reading Dr. Chalmers' life, two two volumes. In the midst of my reading, a man came, came in to ask me to go with him to settle a quarrel between him and his wife. The Lord does not use me like his servant, Dr. Chalmers, for great things. But my way of serving the Lord is walking three or four miles to quiet a family dispute. The Lord shows me that he wishes me to be one of the common Levites who carry the pins. What does it look, what does it look like in our lives to walk humbly with our God? It means examining ourselves and looking to live holy lives. It means raising high Christ in all areas of life. It means living a quiet life, not looking to build a platform for ourselves, but just carrying on, for, uh, just caring for, the or, uh, for ordinary lives of ordinary Christians. It means walking three or four miles with a friend to help him or her with whatever they need help with. It isn't flashy, but it's the ordinary that brings extraordinary change. What am I saying? What I'm saying is that walking humbly with your God is recognizing and witnessing to the fact that our God reigns. God's rule isn't something that we are waiting for. It isn't something that we have to attempt to usher in through uh, manipulation of the political process. It, it is a reality already at this very moment. Hallelujah for the Lord God, the, omni- uh, the omnipotent reigns. And if this is true, then our job is simply to acknowledge this. It is to know that th- th- this God for who he actually is and thus to live accordingly. It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
The Christian life before a, wa- a watching world is merely a public expression of our, feel- our fealty to him and our submission to his word, which, which reveals him in his fullness. It is the outward expression of our humility before Almighty God. The daily Christian walk is, therefore, a bottom-up, inside-out process in the light of our knowledge of God. I, I open by talking about the, the, this great cathedral in Vienna, the Steffensdomplatz. The, the reason this passage keeps bringing me back to thinking about this cathedral is because it, 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 is because it's a, it's, it reminds me of the nature of the body of Christ. The crazy adventure that the gospel inevitably spawns among believers is as oddly paradoxical as that cathedral in Vienna. It's not, it's not just impro- probably, it's not just improbably diverse and yet singularly unified. It's because the whole feat of beauty and balance that exists inside of the Stephens Dome plots was actually achieved by anonymous, ordinary people. Yes, the imperial house of Habsburg employed a few master craftsmen from time to time over the years to complete one fantastic project or another in the cathedral, but the vast majority of the construction was undertaken by faithful members of the congregation. Like most of the other Gothic uh, uh, architectural wonders in Europe, the Steffensdomplatz was built by the folks of the town. There were virtually no professional artisans. There were no, uh, practically no renowned architects. There were no corporate contractors or certified engineers or planning commissions. The feat of stupendous architectural beauty was accomplished by simple men and women that the church had at hand. The extraordinary was achieved by the ordinary. And this is actually the great lesson of all of history, isn't it? It's always, it's always been the ordinary people who ultimately were the ones to shape the great outcomes of human history. Not kings and princes, not masters and tyrants. It, it has always been laborers and workmen, cousins and acquaintances, who have upended the expectations of the brilliant and the glamorous, the experts and the meticulous. It has been plain folk, simple folk, who have literally changed the course of history because they are the stuff of which history is made. G.K. Chesterton said this, he said, the most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children, for indeed the first shall be last and the last shall be first. At first glance, when we come to a passage like Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, and we get to that verse in chapter 8, or in verse 8, it seems like these virtues are something for the especially skilled, the particularly gifted, the, un, the uniquely prepared. I mean, these look and sound hard, like some unscalable summit of spiritual heights. It appears attainable to only a select few, the elite, the the privileged, like some kind of spiritual juggling act or or devotional gymnastics. It seems to be an ideal fit uh, for the ambitious and the talented. 
but nothing could be further from the truth. Like building cathedrals, Micah 6 8 is particularly the domain of the ordinary. The simplest people doing the simplest things has always had the most profoundest effect on the course of history. The simplest people doing the simplest thing has always been the profoundest course to achieve the profoundest things. This mandate in in verse 8 is a call for us to live for Christ in all of life. It's a call for us to be a kingdom of priests in this world. It's that triad of justice, mercy, and humble faith. That that triad of virtues is, is particularly relevant for our calling as a kingdom of priests. Justice is that pursuit of righteous uh, standards in our communities and in our relationships. When we we pursue justice, when we do justice, we we reject the extremes of left and right, of liberal and conservative. And when we do that, when when, when we do that, Scripture becomes the plumb line, it becomes the bottom line for every human endeavor. Mercy, loving kindness, this mercy is the personal touch of the gospel. Where justice is cut and dry, mercy is personal and compassionate. Where justice is no respecter of peoples, mercy extends to its respect to all men everywhere. And then humble faith is simply the recognition of who God is and what he has done. It is the awestruck awestruck and fearful response of the redeemed in the face of grace. A true priest cannot possibly carry out his or her duty as a servant, as salt and light, without careful attention to these three virtues. In a very real sense, this passage is a call to fulfill our role as a priesthood of all believers. It is a challenge for us to, uh, for each of us to move beyond the immobilized spectator church of our day into the fullness of the Reformation vision of true spirituality and effectual ministry. It is a word of faith, hope, and love for a needy world. It is the common man's manifesto. I'll close with this story. In 1976, Corey Ten Boom, the author of that great uh, autobiographical novel, The Hiding Place, wrote a, a, a short article for Guidepost magazine. The, the story is about her, her father. He was a watchmaker in Harlem in the Netherlands. He, he loved his job, and even though this job didn't make him a lot of money, Corey says that often times were quite hard in the family. The story that she tells in this particular article is about one time where the money was extremely tight. A large bill had just come in, and there was not enough money to pay the bill. It was overdue. And then one day, a well-dressed gentleman came into the shop and asked to see some very expensive watches. The customer picked out a, one, of the, one of the more expensive watches that Mr. Tin Boone had, and, uh, and the payment would have been enough 
to cover uh, all of the bills that they had and keep food on the table for some time. As they were wrapping up the transaction, the customer noted that he had another watch which was not running well and that a young watchmaker down the street, a young man who had just taken over his father's business after his father had died, was unable to fix. The well-off customer decided that he needed to just go ahead and buy a new watch. Corey's father asked to see the watch. He took it off the back and realized that the fix was quite simple. So he fixed it for the man and handed it back and said, there, that was a very little mistake. It will be fine now, sir. I, I trust the young watchmaker. Someday he will be just as good as his father. Now I shall give you back your money and you return my watch. Corey was horrified as she watched her father do this. When the, father, when the man left, Corey asked her father how he could do that. Her father had, had thrown away a golden opportunity to get the much-needed income. However, her father chose instead to shock her by his justice, mercy, and humility before God. And he said to her this, he said, Corey, what do you think? What do you think that young man would have said when he heard that one of his good customers had gone to Mr. Tenboon? Do you think that the name of the Lord would have been honored? As for the money, trust the Lord, Corey. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he will take care of us. What does doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God look like in everyday life? It looks like, it looks like Corey's father, an ordinary person doing an ordinary thing, showing justice to a man whose watch needed to be fixed, showing loving kindness to a watchmaker, a young watchmaker whose reputation he could have destroyed, walking humbly with his God in his approach to business and life, trusting God's sovereign care for him. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. As those whom the Lord calls my people, as, as those who are to witness to his rule and reign in this poor fallen world, may we embody these three virtues, justice, mercy, and humble faith. And may we, in embodying these three virtues, may we proclaim to a watching world, hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Not only in our words, but also in our deeds. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you thankful for the fact that you reign. We're thankful, Lord, that though this world presses in, that we, as your people, may call you our God, that, that you have prepared a way for us to enter into relationship with you. 
So Lord, we, we look to you now. We praise your name. We thank you for your many blessings. We ask you to cause us to know what it means to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.